This is a Wild Gate Production Podcast. Welcome to the Crusader Podcast, a show about the castles and crusades role-playing game. Moss, Toloi Chu, Emilio Estevez, Olivia Newton-John, the die is cast. Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of the Crusader Podcast. We're delighted to tell you that we have Stephen Chenault here, and we're going to jump right into the prime topic tonight. So, Stephen, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us tonight. Thanks for having me. And, yeah, we're excited to have you. Um, I mean, I know a little bit about the history of the Trolls and a little bit about the history of CNC, but we're hoping to get new players into this, too. So could you go over just a real brief uh, history of, of how your company got started and how CNC got started? So um, I guess we started in, there's a long story and a short story, but the short story is we started in 99. Um, Mag had been putting some stuff together for a, a little, some game stuff that he wanted to do. A, guy, a friend of mine, Matt Golden, that we've been gaming with for, I don't know, 15, 20 years, something like that. And I had been trying to get stuff published with TSR for a while. We'd been going to Dragon, Dragon Con quite a bit, and he wanted to go to Gen Con. So he came up with the idea, because I didn't want to spend the money to do it. Um, he came up with the idea that we'd create this company uh, to pay our way to Gen Con was essentially the motivation in the very beginning. And I think that I've since learned that his motivation was to get me to form the company with him. He was using that as the excuse because he knew I was so cheap that I, <laughs> that I might actually <laughs> I might actually do that. Because so, he told me later, no, I really wanted to do the company. So, so we formed the company and Davis, my brother, Davis Nault, he joined uh, about a year into its development. And we had put uh, three, we put one adventure together, I think two adventures together. When the printer told us if, if we would, I guess we had three. When we had three and they told us we had four books, they cut us a deal because of the way they laid the covers out and all that business. So that's when I created The World of Air. Well, I didn't create it, I already created it, but I put it into kind of a publishable format. And we went to Gen Con 2000 with four products and a map of The World of Air and then just started selling them. And we, we launched with, in in conjunction with D20, 3.0 had just come out. And Mac being Mac had very carefully designed the game system, Swords and Sorcery, I think is what we call it, to dovetail nicely with third edition. He had been following all of the discussions with what D&D was doing in those days. And in those days, they were talking about the open gaming license, of course. For those people who don't know, they, they opened up a ton of IP for third-party developers like ourselves. So when people would come by the booth, they would quickly, though they didn't see the D&D logo, they saw that, uh, or the D20 logo, they, they saw that a whole bunch of games that were very compatible with the game that uh, Wizards of the Coast had just released. So it sold really well. And then we got picked up by a distributor, and by the following week, we had a consolidator pick us up as well. By the following week, we suddenly had orders coming in in a company that, you know, we, we were sort of prepared for, but <laughs> not entirely prepared for and that launched TLG on its uh, on its maiden voyage, I guess. And it wasn't long. We, we the early sales were really good, uh, especially on the the aired. So that, and it got an any uh, an any nomination, I think, in those days. Um, and uh, that led into the development of the Codex of Aired. And somewhere in that first year, Mac had the idea to contact uh, Gary Gygax. Unbeknownst to me, he had already talked to Gary and left him copies of all of those uh, those books. Um, that we had that we had published and then i guess so about three or four months after that gen con so 
late in 2000, I contacted Gary via email and he responded very quickly. Within a few days, we were on the telephone with a gentleman named Chris Clark, who he was in business with. And within a week or so after that, we were signing contracts to publish a whole line of Gary Gygax books. So very, very quickly, we were suddenly publishers. And any idea that I may have had about, I'm just going to use this to pay for Gen Con was was just in the past. <laughs> you know, I had forgotten about that because we were so busy in the very, very beginning. <clears throat> and we just went from there. So that that's the very brief how we got started. That's amazing, though. Gen Con is like a pilgrimage for a lot of gamers. Some gamers uh, only go there once or twice in their lifetime. It's really cool that you went to Gen Con, <laughs> published some product, sold it, and that led you to working with Gary Gygax. And now you run a gaming company, and you know you have people that are playing your game all over the world. That's like the, the gamer's paradise right there. You're really living the dream, aren't you? Yeah, it, well, I tell you, it's really surreal when I sit back and think about just how it all kind of unfolded. It's, it's very odd. Um, and, and just, yeah, it's very surreal. And, and then the there's the crazy story out. of how you guys met Gary and sort of didn't realize. Oh. oh, yeah. So I'd never seen a picture of Gary. I'd been playing since 76, and I guess Davis never had either. Um, Davis, I think, now we'd already signed the contract. So this is in 2000, 2001, the first time we met Gary, we'd already signed contracts. I can't, I don't think the canting crew had come out. It may have, I can't remember now. Um, it probably did. We probably had just released his book. And I remember Davis, um, Davis met him first accidentally. He was out smoking on the, the, the loading dock. And this gentleman walked out and sat down in, in the chair next to him. We started talking to Davis and they talked for a while. Uh, Davis had no idea. He didn't look at the name tag or Gary may not have had his name tag, but you know, they just chatted it up. And then I remember later that would have been Wednesday or maybe Thursday morning. And then Thursday morning, he, before we opened, he walked by the booth, uh, and he said something really kind of funny. I can't remember now what it was, but I just, I looked at him. I was thinking, well, we're not even open yet. Who, who's here at the booth talking? <laughs> Why is he talking to me? And it took me like a, a solid two minutes to realize, ah, oh, this is Gary Gygax standing in front of me. It was so funny. And he was so funny about it. He thought it was hilarious. Then he and I went out and had a cigarette. Um, but yeah, so that, the meeting of Gary was just absolutely hilarious. And I think that's one of the reasons in the very beginning he enjoyed working with us because we, we never took it uh, as this crazy serious thing. Like, And he didn't either. It was a lot of fun. I mean... It's like you said, Jesse, we're making games for a living. How, how cool is that? I mean, it, it doesn't get better, right? And so, and he was, he kind of had the same, same mentality. So we, we, from the very beginning, we all hit it off really well. So Castles and Crusades was the last game that Gary worked on before he passed away, correct? Correct. Well, that in Legendary Adventures, he, his game, his true love in, in the end was Legendary Adventures. And he was working really hard on that. Um, before the licenses got peeled, we pulled, we had, um, he had finished all three of the major books for the L.A. line. But, yeah, Castles and Crusades is the last published piece that he did. He worked on Castles and Agig, Upper Works, of course. And uh, one of the motivations, there's three main motivations for creating Castles and Crusades. When we, um, we'd, been in, we'd been in business since 2000, and it's like it's roughly 2002 and 2003, somewhere around in that time frame. And uh, I, the D20 market, we all knew it was becoming very very saturated i can't i can't remember the exact number but it was like 140 publishers they were just cramming stuff out the retailers were getting snowballed with product and the distributors too and we all knew there was a collapse everyone that was you know 
publishing behind the scenes in those days knew it was going to it was going to collapse soon. So we were kind of bracing for that. Uh, and I remember I wasn't very enthusiastic about it. I always thought, and I don't want to start any arguments, but I know people absolutely love D20. And it's a great game, 3.0, but it wasn't my type of game. So Davis had asked me while we were in one of our sales meetings, he's, he had asked me what kind of game would I be enthusiastic about? I said, well, whatever RPG we do, it's got to be extremely simple, very, very easy that allows people to role play more than worrying about the mechanics. So that was kind of being discussed. And Davis and Mac, um, who had kind of left the company, they were still associated with us in those days, still are associated with us now. I don't do anything that I don't run by Mac. Uh, but um, they had gone on to do other things. So I was kind of running Troll Lord games by myself in those days. But um, they both had been designing RPGs. They, they love game design. Both of them do. And they had been kind of tinkering with the sword and sorcery or whatever we call that, that thing. And uh, so they kind of said, well, what if we, you know, put this together? And simultaneously with these kind of two motivations to create a new game, Gary and I were talking. He had been looking for a publisher for Upper Works that we were his primary publisher. He wanted to, because it was such a large property, the Castle Zaggy stuff, he wanted to, to, to look around. But uh, he didn't like what he saw, or for some reason, I don't know, he, he came back and said, I'm, I just want to do it through the Troll Lords. I don't want to mess with anybody else. So uh, and we were more than happy to oblige. We'd already put out, I don't know, 50 of his books or something like that, a lot of them. But he he told me, he said, I need something that is very much like AD&D. It's got to be that kind of yeah, that kind of game. And, and I told him we have two options. We can do, you can do an OGL-based thing and do very something simple on the back you know, three or four pages, that's really all you need. Or you can, we're working on this game, we haven't titled it yet, but we got this very simple thing that's inspired by AD&D, we can go with that. And he's like, well, let's go with that. And that's actually where the name Castles and Crusades came from. As soon as Gary was on board, um, we named it after his original game club, which was the Castles and Crusades Society back in the 60s and 70s. So that's where the name comes from. And then, so throughout 2003, 2004, we developed this game. We did a lot of playtesting online with people on the message boards. And most of the rules were, were sent to Gary for approval to make sure that they kind of dovetailed with what he was doing at Castle, Castle Zagig. And then I think uh, we, had, we were running way behind schedule because we wanted something out by the 40th anniversary of D&D, which was 2004. So we put together what we had at that Gen Con, and that's where the first white box, um, when you hear me talk about the white box, that's what I'm talking about. It, it's a small white box that was designed exactly like the original D&D box. We released it 2004. I think we printed, I want to say there's 1,100 copies, something right around in there. Um, and that was de that debuted 2004 at Gen Con. And that was the first. I think the Pilates Handbook came out very soon by December, I think, of 2004, which was the 300 of them were signed. The first 300, uh, it, yeah, the first 300 we call the Spartan 300. Those were signed and numbered by me, Davis, and Peter Bradley, who our main artist, who's still with the company, um, still our main artist. I think, I can't remember if Mac signed the Spartan 300. That's what we call it. But after that, it's been, I mean, we're on our eighth printing. It's the Castle of Saints has been our flagship line for 13, 14 years? Yeah, 14 years, I guess. Well, I think you got a lot of us hooked on it. Back in those early days, uh, when Gary said that he was looking for a game like AD&D, you guys were really the only people uh, doing games like that at that time, right? Um, I know there was like a the big influx of, of third edition and the OGL stuff, but was anybody else doing any um, no. old school gaming at that time? 
No, but there there was a, there was quite a community gathering over on Dragon's Foot. I can't. There was a couple of other sites. I think there was a uh, where these all these guys that were really into to the AD and D, and they didn't play third edition necessarily, but they were really into AD and D. And it, it certainly was already talk amongst the community about you know doing this type of game. And we we weren't really doing that. That's not. They were, I shouldn't say our type of game. They were talking about doing a game just like Advanced Dungeons & Dragons. Because if you follow the OGL, as long as you didn't use um, trade dress, you could essentially put the game back together that you had played back in the 1980s. And that's not really what CNC was. Now, CNC was, we took Dungeons & Dragons, everything that you're familiar with in Dungeons & Dragons, we stripped all of the anything that we felt was cumbersome out and rolled it into the Siege Engine, the, the attribute check system that Davis and Mac developed, so that everything was simple, simple, simple. In that regard, we definitely were the first. I, I rarely refer to CNC as an old school revival game, the OSR game, but we definitely predated that. Now, a lot of the people who went on to work on the OSR movement were part of our community when we were developing CNC. And for whatever reason, whether they didn't like the way we were doing it or our approach, or we weren't AD&D enough or whatever, you know, everybody's got their thing they went on in their own directions so the osr movement definitely came after cnc um some would probably argue that it's not osr itself but some would I, i'm not sure where it all fall into that but um yeah so we definitely predated it we were the only ones and we were because we had deep ties in the distribution channels and the retail so when we when we released in 2005 with the actual players handbook uh, I remember the distributor at my consolidate was like, dude, we can't, I can't sell this. It's not D&D. I, I can't sell this. Uh, just send me 100 copies. And I said, dude, you're going to sell more than that. Let me send you more. And I think I sent him 500 copies for him to just announce with. And he announced on Monday and by Tuesday, he was on the phone. Dude, I need more copies. So, cause it just, it, it blew out the first, I mean, it was, it was fantastic. So, uh, and that started the whole the whole C and C bandwagon, but we definitely were before anyone else in the field. There is no doubt about that. It's funny that you mentioned the OSR thing. Nobody can seem to actually define it. People have been fighting <laughs> yeah. about what it is since the very beginning. You know, it's interesting. I, I love the fact that people are all playing the games that they want to play. I mean, it's fantastic. And that's one of the cool things that came out of the OSR or the OGL thing is that really you can develop any kind of game you want. If you like uh, AD and D fantastic. If you want to take AD and D and, tweak it uh, all of that stuff i think it's, it's just really cool because everyone can kind of find their their comfortable niche where they are you know where they want to play whether it's 1981 or 1976 or whatever it is um, and that's kind of that just makes it kind of cool and the, the nice thing about cnc is it sort of gives unless you play the game you guys play it so you know but uh if you play the game a lot you realize that this it this doesn't really fit anywhere and you can kind of do anything with it I remember when, right after we released the player's handbook, um, it sold really well. We were getting a lot of comments on message boards and emails and people actually called in those days. We rarely get phone calls anymore, but people call in those days. And I remember a guy calling me, he just bought it and he was super excited. And he kept going on about, this is just like the Moldvay version of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I never really followed a lot of the, the specific history of the D&D releases I played. I started with the, the little brown books back in the mid '70s and jumped right into the player's handbook and never did anything else. I didn't play expert or basic or whatever the other ones are. Um, but I really kept mentioning Mulvey to me, and I, I got off the phone once. I got off the phone, 
And I emailed Gary and I said, dude, I have no idea what he's talking about. He said something like a Moldvay version. <laughs> Gary was, <laughs> he just wrote me an email back with, ah, ah, and then gave me a history of all, <laughs> all the stuff. It was really funny because I really didn't, I didn't have any idea, but we had people telling us that C&C was like AD&D or second edition. And that's when it hit me. C&C is actually like the game you like to play because it's so versatile. I mean, it, 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 the Siege engine, as you know, it's just, it's just crazy simple. And it gutted all of the uh, things that may have been a problem for some people in the earlier editions or even in 3 and 3.5. Not not say there's anything inherently wrong with any of those versions, and, and many of those I've played myself. But, yeah, CNC just nailed it. I, I can still remember that first game playing with Todd at Egyptian oh, yeah. Campaign back in 2005, and I was hooked and bought the books. Well, Steve, um, yesterday I put a post on the Facebook group uh, soliciting questions if any of the fans had any anything that they'd like to talk to you about. Um, so we do have quite a few if you want to go through some of those with us. Yeah, absolutely. Now, here's one I just pulled up, uh, Jesse, uh, from one of our uh, newer fans from Puerto Rico, uh, Louis Lau. And uh, this is just a fantastic story. We'll try to run over it. You know, he tells us, and he's told us before, he says, I fell in love with CNC and the Siege Engine since I started reading the Player's Handbook a year ago. Uh, Maria obliterated their island and he tells us that we were left without power for five months and didn't have uh, clean running water for two months, lost 96% of his clients and was on the brink of falling back into depression. And he uh, says, Stephen Chenault and the guys at Trollor Games, he's thanking us essentially for creating an amazing RPG system and how it kind of saved me from, uh, you know, him from himself, as he says, and, and his depressive thoughts. And uh, he's been running the campaign since January and he says it's amazing. His players love the system. They're happy with the characters, and they use the advantages optional rules found in the uh, Castle Keeper's Guide. And uh, two of his friends have asked him, are there more advantages anywhere in the CNC library? And he's kind of looked over things and haven't found any more. And also, are there going to be more advantages included in any book uh, in the near future? Uh, well, first off, I remember when the, when the hurricane hit, Tim was pretty... Tim Burns, he works for us. He's our communications director. And he's he was pretty aggressive about doing whatever we could. You know, we did a, a big sale at some point where we donated 10% of the proceeds to, I'm, I'm not sure what charity it was. Tim, Tim handled that. And I remember him talking to, uh, to Lewis when they were uh, getting the books down to him. And it's really cool to hear that type of stuff because, as we all know, at the end of the day, gathering around the table, whether you have to do it by candlelight or just, you know, you got electricity or whatever it is, it just makes things better all the way around. Your your life can be upside down as it happens to all of us at some point or the other, and sitting around that table can really really help. Um, so that's that's really cool to hear. As as for the advantages, Casey Christofferson wrote that section of the Castle Keeper's Guide. Uh, now Casey is a good friend of mine. He's an, an extraordinarily good writer and a very good game designer, uh, but he likes rules crunch more than I do. So he headed up that entire side of it. He wrote some really cool stuff. I think he did originally, what was his book called, Tyler? I know you remember it. Um, the black one with the cover. Uh, oh, the, uh, the Black Librum of Nartaris. Yes, the Black Librum. I think there might be some advantages in that, but I'll bet you he, if there was, he put them in the CKG. Now, Casey has gone on to work for Frog God Games, uh, good friends of ours. So he's not... He's, he's not, he and I talk about once a month about doing some projects together, but I think they're doing Bard's Gate or just did Bard's Gate or some huge project. Uh, so as soon as we can uh, untie Casey from uh, 
Bill Webb's frog god, then uh, we we may get some advantages out of him then. But so <laughs> so there's nothing immediately on the docket. And I do want to point out that's probably Luis Lau. I, I was thinking Louis, and you're thinking Louis, and I think we kind of came together on getting the name. But it's really just a tremendous story from from uh, Luis as we've talked yeah. to him over the many months, and people like Roberto Micaro as well, who have become a big part of the uh, Castles and Crusades and Trollor Games uh, community. Uh, we do have another uh, question uh, from Ingolf Schaefer uh, about uh, he'd really like to know what the strategy from TLG for Castles and Crusades and 5e is. Will will we uh, or will you guys continue to do uh, CNC first and later a 5e version? And then another question: What about Star Siege and Brimstone and the Border Hound? All right, so the fifth edition, what we're doing with that, uh, we're, we're as any of you who are playing fifth edition D&D knows, the game is a lot like our own. Now, it's it's more complicated than CNC. CNC is much simpler. The more I look at, at fifth edition, CNC is really, at the end of the day, the attribute check system is going to get you where you want to be with it, anything that you're doing. So once you've learned it and mastered it, which takes all of 10 or 15 minutes, the hardest part is to, to come to, to grips with how uh, adaptable the siege engine actually is almost any situation that is coming at my table i can pull that siege engine out and it is resolved it is absolutely i'm still many this 10 years later or whatever it is kind of stunned at how how easy the siege engine has made my my gaming um and as you guys who have seen some of the con games i, I run know i run a pretty fast game and i have a pretty big table up to 25 people i think at, at some of these conventions but um but at, at its core, Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition uses an attribute check system, which is very similar to our own, or, you know, they mirror one another. So converting over to the to the Dungeons & Dragons crowd is just, it's a no-brainer for us. It's where we began, actually. We began publishing, now, I guess we began with Swords and Sorcery, but, you know, we launched really with D20 and doing and getting into the market. So in that regard, it's it's coming back to our own roots to, to put the fifth edition stuff out so right now i've got quite a bit of energy developed towards that getting the material out that said we're, we're we are quietly roping in fifth edition fans through the world of aired because we're selling a lot of aired stuff into the fifth edition market and of course we push with aired we use to push castles crusades into that market too so that's a very good thing um but fifth edition will not take uh precedence over c and c there's that's just not going to happen. I don't, I don't. I don't see that happen. You'll see a lot of titles coming out of out of our stable that are fifth edition. Uh, we'll even start doing some. I think we've done one that's sort the sort of Rami we did for Free RPG Day, uh, which was written fifth edition first, and we'll eventually convert that over to CNC. Jason Faye will, but um, that was specifically done to let retailers know that that they can order fifth edition material from us because we're, we're relatively new. I think we're eighteen months into that market. Maybe, probably not even that maybe but um so going forward with castles and crusades yeah we've got a, 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 davis and i were talking about the other day we've got a couple of cool ideas that i don't want to talk about yet until he's he's talking about doing a role-playing game based on a siege engine which is really i like the concept of it um up next i think we've got codex i've got to settle what i'm going to do with the second printing of the codex keltarum um, Brian Young has rewritten the book, so he wants that revisited. And we're almost, I think we've got like 110 copies left. Uh, and then there's the Codex Egyptius. I'm sure that's going to have a different name when we do it. So that's next on the docket. And I've just got a mountain of arid material that I will address as soon as the Tomb of the Unclean, Tome of the Unclean, 
is done. Um, I always mix that title up. I call it Tomb all the time. Jason Bay makes fun of me constantly. It's Tome of the Unclean. But um, so after that, um, yeah, I'll, dove, I'll, I'll dive into to the world of air like, like a crazy man. We've got some crossover stuff with uh, CNC and Amazing Adventures that Jason and I are just dying to do. And it ties into the world of air. It's all uh, really cool stuff. And then um, as so far, it would guess for Tainted Lands. I'll just give a, a broad net and ca capture it all. So sitting on Jason Bay's desk, he's got a lot of stuff sitting on his desk. He's become uh, the lead writer, uh, lead designer for a lot of these things. Kind of his, what I've turned over to Jason is making sure that all of our Siege Engine games are completely compatible with the, the player's handbook, the CNC player's handbook. I want someone to be able to walk from playing in the player's handbook and into Amazing Adventures and they're, it's the same rules. There's no, they don't have to rethink anything. And both Tainted Lands and Star Siege kind of broke from that a little bit. Uh, Star Siege a lot, uh, Tainted Lands not much, but just enough to, to make me want to revisit revisit the whole thing. So Jason has on his desk, he's got a lot of stuff on his desk at the moment, but in, in amidst all of that is a Star Siege redo and then a Tainted Lands. I don't think Tainted Lands is going to need much, but I want to get that back on the market. It's something fiercely, that and, uh, that and Star Siege both. That's probably late 2019. Uh, he and I have got to iron out some smaller things that he's doing, but it's a lot of smaller things that he's doing. And once we're through that, he can shift his gears on that. But we're already approaching, we're about to sell out of Amazing, not, not soon, but in the next three or four months, probably sell out of Amazing Adventures. So we've got to figure out what we're gonna, how we want to repackage that one volume or whatever. There's just, uh, it's a lot going on. So yeah, we're, and now I guess the last thing is Brimstone. You know, I, that game to me is so, the concept of that game is so cool. I absolutely love the idea of bounty hunters in hell hunting the, these demons and devils and whatnot. Uh, and I, I haven't talked to Brim in a while, but uh, that's that's still on my mind. I've not removed it from the, I've got a, a folder of Siege Engine games and Brimstone is right there at the top. Um, so it, it will be revisited. When I can't say, but, but soon. I, I just love the concept of the game. I know we have at least maybe three other questions on the Castles and Crusades group page, and there may be some on the Crusader podcast Facebook page as well. I'm not certain about that at the moment, but we'll, we'll hit these three for sure. I guess a moment of uh, lightheartedness here. Will there ever be a 20th anniversary in the year 2024 CNC core book release made from the finest Corinthian? <laughs> Just for you. Just so I'm, not, Just... I'm not sure that question but <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know who submitted <laughs> I, is is there such a thing as corinthian leather i see i seem to remember him ricardo montalban saying there isn't he just made it up <laughs> but no getting on to a more serious question you can answer that one later but i i think it's a great idea but uh anyway uh Derek jones comments uh if maybe if we want, want to throw out one other good gary gygax anecdote uh perhaps it was just funny. I walked by Gary's booth or his his table. It's like eight guys at the table. Peter Bradley was actually at the table too. And all I heard was uh, Gary say he he casts the magic missile, and everybody kind of looks at him. And then it, you're not going to see what I'm doing, but Gary holds his hands up and he wiggles his fingers and he goes boogity 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 boo. It was it was <laughs> so funny. I just felt everyone just because everyone was expecting some huge serious thing. It was so funny. We all just fell over laughing from John uh, Figopoulos uh, Figliomeni, I guess. I'm not sure if that's a uh, an actual name. Perhaps it is. I, I hope I've done it justice. Uh, is there a perfect composition for a party? 
Then a random question, does this look infected to you? <laughs> nah, you're you would, good. Just drink more Dr. Pepper. You're good. Whatever whatever you got. You, you would think that was my question, but no. Uh, when is railroading appropriate? When is killing the death of, of uh, PCs appropriate? Uh, and when is fudging numbers rolls appropriate? Uh, a couple right. of questions from him. That's a, those are a whole lot of them. Okay, so starting with, what was the first one? Is there a perfect composition for a party? I would say a fighter. Um, you have, you absolutely have to have a cleric, um, a ranger for me if I'm running the game, and a wizard. Now, if they're if you're in if your DM CK does a more uh, a city adventures, town adventures, then you might want to swap that ranger for a rogue. But definitely fighter, ranger, cleric, maybe a druid, um, and a wizard, magic user magic using class of some type now i'm all confused now that the adventurer's backpack has so many spell casting <laughs> i can't keep them all straight now because we've got like 27 of them or something and of course the uh when is railroading appropriate when is killing or the death of pcs appropriate and when is fudging numbers and rolls appropriate i think railroading is some it's rarely very rarely i mean sometimes it is too but i try to never railroad I try to actually adjust my adventures to what the characters are doing. I cannot count the number of times that I've set the encounter in front of them, and as they're clearly not going to it, I just move the encounter to wherever they're going. Uh, so it's it's they don't see it, but it's like you know, pendulums in the background or something. But I, I try not to railroad because it really you end up upsetting characters when they feel like they're forced into into doing something uh, that they they didn't want to. If you can do it very subtly, then then maybe, but uh really i try to have a very fluid game i always recommend fluid games because uh they're playing too and they've got ideas and they're trying to figure out what you've laid in front of them and that sometimes is very very difficult i think ck's all the time forget how difficult it is to figure that riddle out to figure out which direction you're supposed to go uh so when they don't go in the right way it's best to adjust your adventure if you can um as opposed to uh, uh trying to push them somewhere it's, it's probably not going to go the way you want it to Killing characters, I don't, I don't, I don't kill characters often. It's usually when they do something so egregious that, you know, they get themselves killed or the dice just, if the dice are just against them, the dice are just against them. Um, but the game is, we we're actually talking about this afternoon over lunch. The game is actually designed for a character's death. That's what resurrection is all about. Um, rare. I don't think you should kill characters often. I try not to because when you do, if you do kill them a lot, then it just becomes, there's no emotional investment into the game. So, they just losing characters and nobody cares. So I, I would reserve killing characters in extreme situations. Or, you know, if they roll four natural ones in a row, you know, the dice are against you. You're, <laughs> it's done. Well, Steve, we, we got a lot of questions. We got more than uh, we thought we would. Um, so we probably won't be able to get to all of them because we still want to give you plenty of time to talk about the Adventures Backpack. Uh, but I do have a couple that came through on email. Um, one of them is from George. Uh, Hardy, I got to give a shout out to him because he has been giving me feedback throughout this whole process of getting the podcast started. I've bounced lots of ideas off of him and he's always been really receptive to that. So thank you, George. Very cool. um, George wants to know, uh, what is the origins of the name Troll Lord Games? You touched on how Castles and Crusades was named, but how did you choose Troll Lord Games? You know, there was a whole bunch of, I got a list around here. No. Mac and I sat down, kind of wrestled with uh, logos too. He designed probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 logos uh, that we, we, we all toyed with. But Troll Lord Games, 
if I remember correctly, comes from in our, what we call the big game, the game we started in 1984 and we're still playing today. And the characters are 30th odd level. And if you look, if you're familiar with Aerd, you can see them woven into the history. They're the ones that, they're the Council of Light that fought the Winter Dark and Umklar. Luther's one, Aristobulus is one, Dolgon, Daladon. These are their characters. And the, the primary foe for that game for the better part of a decade was a wizard called Nulak and his, his other name was Troll Lord. He was the troll lord. He, com- he, he, he commanded armies of trolls in our game. And it, the more we kind of circled around name concepts, uh, troll lord just seemed to be the, the thing to go with. I mean, it, we've been playing it forever, so, so that's where troll lord comes from. We just added games to the end of it. Ironically, we found out later that you really want to name your company with an A, because in those days there was a gigantic 250, 300-page catalog of game companies. And T is way back at the end of the alphabet. So... <laughs> So we were buried in the back of that catalog, but Carl, I just you're gonna have to edit this out. But I just sent you a Facebook message of one of the email um, that we got. Do you want to read that one real quick so we can get you in there too? Oh yeah, I've just been listening to this great podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Oh wait, I'm on this. Oh no, (laughs) I'm supposed to say stuff too. All right. Uh, So this is a question, Steve, uh, that we received via email. From Nwindm, N-W-N-D-M, Northwestern something, Nebraska, Northwestern Nebraska DM. That's what I'm going to say it stands for. Um, <laughs> he says, That worked. <laughs> I'd like to find out more about Trollord Games' plan for promoting more online play, a largely untapped market. And opportunity for attracting people to castles and crusades, in my opinion. Tim and I talk about that at least once or twice a week. And we are we are attempting to get that started. What we really need is to put together a team of uh, four, five, six, six people that can help us walk into that and, and then get me up on it and maybe once a month gaming and not uh, so I can kind of learn how it how it actually does. But he's right. I mean, the, the market is gigantic, and it's really, it's not even, I, I won't even go so far as to say, I've watched a lot of those games on Twitch and whatnot. They're very cool, but I don't even think that's where it's going. It, so much of it is going to places like Roll20 and, and Fantasy Grounds that you know, it, it's mind-numbing, and it's just so easy now with the technology. So Tim and I talk about it constantly. It, it's one of the things that, um, that is definitely on our minds. So if he's volunteering, we're looking for volunteers to help us get all that rolling. All right. So I have um, one more that I'm going to pull out of the email bag here. Um, I think it's a good one to end on also. So Bruce Gray wants to know what cool projects can we expect to hit the stores for the remainder of the year? And further out, are there any cool projects simmering on either the front burner or the back burner for 2019? The uh, What we're going to see released this year is Tomb of the Unclean. That'll be the next thing super excited about getting that out uh and in people's hands uh we'll follow that up tome of the unclean <laughs> good lord oh. <laughs> i'm just gonna start calling it the unclean i gotta, I gotta quit uh, and then we'll have harvesters out hopefully uh late uh, early early winter and the harvesters is a siege engine game of course where you you play squirrels and uh, rabbits and such really cool little game put out by by john siebel so that's what's uh, that's what's on the docket for this year. We've got a few smaller things like adventures and whatnot. I have to readdress uh, the CNC screens we got. Next year, we're looking at uh, Egyptius, the Codex Egyptius, 
And probably the thing that I've got my mind, the two projects that I haven't, that I have my mind on that I haven't settled on, uh, one or the other. Uh, oh wait, I should mention also of Gods and Monsters is getting a, is getting redone. Peter's working on the cover now, so that might come out this year, if not early, early next year. Uh, we've got how we want to do it, and now it's just a matter of doing it. Um, and it really, most of it's already written by Jim Ward. It just needs some stuff added. I, I basically wanted to make it uh, similar to the gods as they were presented in the player's guide to Aird, so that when you're when you're using that book, you can have all this information readily at hand. Some of it's in there, but I want more of it, and that's going to be the expansion on of gods and monsters. Hopefully, that'll be out this year. Uh, next year, I've got my eyeball on one of two projects. Uh, one is uh, the Planescapes book. I really want to do a Castles and Crusades Planescapes, um, where we can just explore all of these planes that are out there so that when you when you leave the world of Arid or whatever world you're playing in, you've got somewhere to go. Uh, and then personally, what I'm more kind of in tune to is of Gods and Monsters of Arid, which really will allow me to explore the mythologies of Arid and expand all of that in the same kind of format that of Gods and Monsters will be. So that's kind of what's on the, the 2019 schedule. I just got to pick one or the other. Steve, I know that was just uh, Arkansan slang, but I really hope there's a uh, CNC book called Adventures and Whatnot. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> Other things like the eventual uh, eighth printing of the Player's Handbook and the eventual fifth printing of the Monster and Treasure. Uh, M&T, we've got, uh, I've got three artists hammering 20 more pictures that I want in a uh, light edit, I think, and then it's ready to go to printer. It'll be out this year as well. That's Monsters and Treasures. The Castle Keeper's Guide's about to be sold out, so I'm looking at a, a third printing on that. And the eighth printing of the Player's Handbook is probably due, I would say, early next year. It just kind of depends, but it's very soon. And I got it's going to have the same cover. Any Anyone out there, if you've found any little typos or whatever in the Player's Handbook, let us know. I need to fix them now because uh, it, it's creeping up on us faster than we think. Okay. So, um, Steve, what do you want to tell us about the Adventures Backpack? I know that a lot of labor and love went into it um i just got back from vacation and my copy was sitting here waiting for me haven't read the whole thing but what i have read of it which is most of it uh, i really like most of it it's it's really great yeah i I really it's it's a book that's been as everybody knows that's been playing cnc for a while it's been floating around the the troll dens for a long time uh and and essentially it probably at its core it was the archer that kind of brought it to, together that and the, the concept of the backpacks because we had this archer class that we'd been playing forever in a day and we just began to kind of build classes off of that but what i really wanted to do with the adventures backpack um when i run a game i don't do this at cons but when i run my thursday night game you have to you have to supply yourself if you don't have it written on your character you don't have it so we kind of developed this these backpack concepts that have everything in it you just buy it you don't have to, we don't have to spend you know an hour and a half equipping your character or whatever it is and that kind of began to formulate into this idea that this would really be a cool resource for people to have so that you don't you don't have to spend a lot of your game time some of us don't have much game time you know three four five hours and you don't want to spend an hour equipping or whatever it is so uh, that kind of blossomed from there and then we began building these classes when i run a game i let i once they get high level i kind of let them hybrid their own characters and cnc of course lets you do that so i've got I've, I've got a ranger at the table who's nothing like a ranger at this point. He's 13th level. I don't know what he is. He's just got bits and pieces of, of these things and uh, abilities. And that's what I ended up doing when I started creating these classes is, is tying them to the, some of these concepts that had floated across the, the table. And then I, when I began to do it, I, I began to watch about two years ago when I began to actually write the book. 
I started watching things at both my table and at Khan's table. And, and those questions that people asked uh, that needed answered, but I, I couldn't find in the player's handbook of the CKG, uh, things on mounts and dogs and pole arms and, and all of these just kind of odd and end things. And that's what I began to, to, to write up, develop, and put into the adventure's backpack. So it looked like utter chaos while I was doing it because none of these subjects seemed to, you know, link or whatever. But once we began to actually put the whole thing together, uh, suddenly I felt like, wow, we got a really cool resource here. Uh, and I got more and more jazzed about it the, the more it took shape. Uh, and I think it's, I mean, it's been well-received so far. Uh, I, I think people are seeing it kind of the same way. It really has added a ton of stuff to the, without adding too much, without adding any rules, really. Um, it's added just a ton of playable material to Castles and Crusades. I like that you brought up the Archer. I have the Black Box Adventures mm-hmm. backpack that you guys published yeah. a while back. Um, and I run a lot of con games, um, and I always put the Archer in as a pre-generated character. And it's funny because that Archer gets snapped up so fast. Everybody wants to play the Archer. <laughs> yeah, they're really cool, and it's one of the... And because there's no specific rule for it, um, you know, it kind of gets passed over, but people love Bowman, and that the archer is just cool i mean it's just cool and it's perfectly designed and this was not intentional i can guarantee you but um the fighter you only get one rate of you only get to shoot one arrow in castles and states it's not two arrows around it's one one arrow around and so it just became perfect that the archer is so good he gets two arrows around the the whole class had this really nice you know zeitgeist or whatever the word is to it that it, it made it work for me and Mac really wanted the thief to be, because he did write that one, he really wanted the thief to be very AD&D-esque. He loved thieves in the old days, and the rogue is cool, but he doesn't have, you know, a few of the abilities that the AD&D thief did. So the, the thief kind of captured that as well. And from there, the other classes just kind of went on their own. The primal druid I really liked. We actually, from the, from the original Codex of Aired, which Mark Sandy had designed, and I love the concept of the primal druid. He's there... He doesn't, and I love this whole concept that the druid's not there to protect the forest from you. He's there to protect you from the forest. Uh, so I just absolutely love that concept. Turns it all on on its head. And it's a little bit more realistic because anyone who's been camping, it's not, it, the weather or the terrain does not care. <laughs> it doesn't have any thought whether you live or die. Just... Yeah, I also really like the arcane thief. I think that one's yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. And the scald is, is awesome too. Um, you actually made bards cool, which I didn't think was possible. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I agree. The bard has long been on my list of, my short list of characters I don't care for. And it, it's not because the concept's not interesting. It's just there's not much they can do in my type of game. So the assassin is right up there as well. It just, I, I run a lot of overland games. So so when I when I did the skull, I started, I took the, the bard and thought, okay, well, what can we do with this to make it, to make it interesting? And then I made it warlike. Uh, if you read much in the world of air, everything is warlike. The dwarves, the halflings, and everybody is. Uh, so all my classes turned out to be pretty warlike as well. Of course, for those that didn't own a rune lore in previous years, uh, a hardcover that Trollor Games had out for some time so with 16 adventures in it and uh, all sorts of rune spells in the rune mark class, it is now included in the adventurer's backpack, uh, especially for those that didn't previously own the, uh, the rune lore uh, book. Yeah, I put that in there. I just, I'm, I'm going to chop up the Rune Lore book and turn it into three different, well, two different books. But I needed a home for the, for the Rune Mark, and the Adventures Backpack was just a natural, you know, 
it, it, there would be no reason not to put it in there. You know, one of the great things I think about this adventurer's backpack is part of the name itself, the backpack. And that kind of ties in with the player's handbook and, and sometimes character creation, even though it is quite simple and quick in castles and crusades, I guess if you're picking spells for illusionists and other caster classes, it can take a little more time, but sometimes if you're using encumbrance or you're just using the weights or just kind of eyeballing it, sometimes picking that equipment and what saddlebags you want for your pack animal and all those things can take a little time. Yeah. But this is another thing that the Adventurer's Backpack is going to do really well. Uh, the Adventurer's Backpack is uh, really a second player's handbook for the Castles and Crusades game. It brings in another 13-odd classes that uh, are very each and each all different from the original 13 that appear in the player's handbook itself. It has new spells and new equipment. It has 34 new backpacks, uh, backpacks and the concept being that you can equip your character very, very quickly. And then it's got odd name rules, pummeling, uh, war mounts, uh, pole arms, and so forth and so on. A fantastic addition to your Castles and Shades game. It's, it's almost a must-have if you're a player. So, Steve, thanks for being with us again tonight. It was a pleasure having you, and hopefully we'll have you again on the Crusader Podcast. I had a great time. Anytime. It'd be great. Some games may change, but the Siege Engine remains the same. a lot of shenanigans <laughs> a lot of them there's a lot of drinking in those days too it was just <laughs> some crazy crazy dr pepper all the way yes yes um, yeah just dr pepper of course <laughs> of course <laughs>